This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. Uh, this is a series of messages we've been doing. This is part 10, following in the footsteps of a prophet. And this particular prophet is Elisha. And we've been looking at his life and his ministry. We've been seeing some amazing things that God used this man to do. And uh, we're going to begin reading where we left off uh, last Sunday morning. And uh, then in this particular message, kind of one incident flows into another. So we'll go through it and uh, we will uh, stop here and there and highlight uh, various things. And let's see uh, what we can learn from this. So 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning to read from verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. Even though this is thousands of years ago, you're talking at least two and a half thousand years ago, perhaps more. Isn't it interesting that Syria is still the enemy of Israel today? No longer the ancient enemy, but the modern-day enemy of Israel today. One of them, uh, her northern neighbor. Uh, at the moment, uh, she can't do too much about Israel because Syria is in conflict within itself and with these IS jihadists as well. But So after all of these thousands of years, uh, that animosity is still directed towards uh, the state of Israel. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel and he consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, which is Elisha, sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. And so that obviously implies it was several times this happened, probably over weeks or months. And it seemed to be that every strategy that uh, Ben-Hadad, king of uh, the upper northern kingdom of uh, Syria, had against Israel, that God revealed this uh, secretly to Elisha, who went and told the king of Israel, Jehoram. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, which one of you is the traitor? Somebody is giving inside information. Somebody is a traitor in the camp. That was the logical thing to think, wasn't it? Never imagined in a million years that God was on his case and revealing his secrets. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Isn't that amazing? That here is this prophet, and God is revealing, we don't know how, 
whether he spoke audibly to him or spoke into his heart or his mind, but he certainly knew exactly what this king was planning against the king of Israel. And so this is a, an amazing uh, gift that this particular prophet had. He was able to discern these things. And so he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city. Great men are not always wise men. And this man, if I could put it bluntly, was absolutely stupid. Imagine knowing that the God of Israel was revealing his secrets to his prophet, even the very words spoken in his bedroom. And at that moment, he didn't stop and think, well, if God of Israel revealed that to the prophet, surely he would reveal what I'm doing now, my plan to go and get him. Surely he would know this. But evidently he didn't. He never thought of that. And so he was sent to surround his army. This is not his whole army. This was a great host, but not the whole army of Syria. That comes a little bit later. And so he sent this great host, this great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And a servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now this young servant was not Gehazi, by the way. He's long since gone. Smitten with leprosy. He's out of the picture completely. This is another young servant of Elisha. And can you imagine his shock when that morning he went out early, maybe to prepare breakfast or whatever, and suddenly all around the hills of Dothan, where they were staying, was this great host, and the sun had risen and was glinting of their spears and their swords and their shields. It must have been a sight in full technicolor, 360 degrees all the way around in high definition. His eyes must have popped out of his head. His heart must have been thumping, and fear gripped him. Fear was a natural reaction to what he saw. He could hardly believe his own eyes. They came in the night unexpectedly, at least to him, at least anyway. And whenever he saw this, fear began to grip his heart. Fear is a normal, natural reaction to something like that. And whenever we are surrounded by problems and difficulties and crises, fear is normally the first thing that strikes at us in our minds and in our hearts. And it was no different for this young man. So he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? He looked at the situation through the eyes of fear, and he despaired. There was no way out of this situation. There was no escape route. They were all around the city, and there was a great many of them. And they were armed to the teeth, and they had nothing. There was no way through this problem. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, do not fear. <laughs> Easier said than done, isn't it? Do not fear. Jesus, on more than one occasion, 
said those words to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Situations that seemed overwhelming, beyond human capability, and yet they said, do not fear. Fear paralyzes us. When fear grips us, we're helpless and hopeless. So the first thing he said, he must have saw in his eyes, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha could see more than the young man could see. Elisha could see with eyes of faith. He could see beyond the natural situation. And he said, there's more that be with us than be with them. Notice he didn't say there's more that be with us than them. He says, than be with them. Who are the, that are with them? Who are they? Well, we'll see in a moment. Let's see who was with Elisha first, and then it'll be easy to see who was with them. So he said, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's what Elisha saw. He saw beyond the natural, and he saw into that spirit world. There is a world beyond our natural eyes that we cannot presently see. And once in a while, here's one of those times in Scripture when God takes the veil away. And suddenly, he was able to see chariots of fire, angelic hosts, warring angels all around them. Who was the ones that was with them? Well, you can understand that. That was the opposite, wasn't it? That was the demonic forces that was driving them against Israel. By the way, taking the modern-day Israel, why should a little, tiny, little nation with a very tiny population, why should it be the center of the world's attention? Why should every superpower come against Israel? Why should they do that? It's not logical. It's not rational. Sure, it's not. It's a spiritual thing. It's a prophetic thing. And here we see it in operation here. Whenever you read the book of Revelation, you see this again and again and again, where God draws away the veil and we can see what's happening in the spirit world. We see it in the book of Daniel. When Daniel was praying for knowledge about a certain situation, and God sent an angel to give him the message but it was taking a long time for the angel to break through the heavenlies where the demonic forces were. In fact, he had to get the assistance of Michael, the warring angel, the warring archangel, to come and told him that. And so here we see this again. There's a world beyond our natural eyes that we do not see at this present time, but we see it here. And suddenly this young man was able to see with the eyes of faith not fear. And like Elisha, he saw this great host that encircled them. And so he was no longer concerned about the host out there when he saw the angelic angels gathered around him. And so when the Syrians came down to him, 
Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Let me just pause here for a moment. This was no ordinary blindness. It would have been a miracle at any rate had they been struck physically blind. But it was a different kind of blindness. They could still see, because in a moment you're going to see how Elisha led them to Samaria, to the city. Now, how could, how could a whole army of people, if they were physically blind, how could they go 15 miles led by one man? No, they could see, but they couldn't recognize what they were seeing. This was the blindness they were struck with. In Acts chapter 9, let me give an example. In Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus he was then, he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and a great light shone around him. And he couldn't see for a season. And he physically, literally couldn't see because those who were with him had to lead him by the hand. And in Acts 13, whenever Paul and Barnabas is preaching to Sergius Paulus, a Roman governor, a proconsul, who had asked to speak to them, he was interested in their faith. And so Paul was preaching to him. But there was a sorcerer called Elymas, a wicked man who, seeing that Paul Barnabas was getting through to his boss, he tried everything to stop them talking. And Paul got fed up with this after a while, and he, he prayed and smote him with blindness for a season. And it says he had to be led about by the hand because he couldn't physically see. So there's a physical blindness that God has struck with, but this is different. Now, on the road to Emmaus, do you remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Christ's resurrection? And Jesus caught up with them on the road, and they were very sad, and they were talking. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? Why is this sad? And they said, are you a stranger here? Do you not know the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, a, a, a prophet of God, a miracle worker? Do you not know are you a stranger here? And the Bible says their eyes were restrained. The old King James thinks this was holding, restrained. They saw what they didn't recognize. And Jesus then began at Moses and all the prophets and opened up the scripture. And then they came to where they were staying. They said, will you stay with us? And then at the breaking of bread, whenever they began to eat, as soon as he broke bread, suddenly their eyes were opened and they saw him. They recognized him. They'd seen him all along, but they didn't recognize him. But suddenly now they recognized him. So that's the blindness. This is the... <laughs> The blindness that these men are struck with, they can see, but they cannot recognize. Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. And some say, well, was he lying here? Well, technically, he wasn't really because he was leaving Samaria. He was leaving Dothan to go to Samaria. He was going to lead them there, but he wasn't, they weren't going to find him in Dothan because he wasn't going to be there. He was going to Samaria. And he would expose himself at that point. They would see him for who he was once they got to Samaria, but they didn't recognize him. 
The very one they came for, they didn't recognize him. He says, I'll take you to the man. And by the way, as far as Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was concerned, Elisha was just an irritant. He was just a pest. He was just an annoyance. Really, it was the king of Israel he wanted to get. He was the one he wanted to destroy. But he would just take care of this, this crazy prophet and get rid of him easily. That's what he thought. But not so easy because God's involved here. And so he led them to Samaria. Can you imagine this little man, this little prophet, going all the way to Samaria, this 15 miles, and this great host behind him, all thinking that this man is going to lead them to Elisha, He's going to lead them to where he is. And all the time, he is the one. God had totally confused them. You know, when you read through Scripture, you'll see it happened with the Moabites and the Philistines and others where God confused the enemy. We know the devil's smart. We know that. We know he's subtle. But he's not God. And God can confuse our enemies. And he confused this enemy. He led them to Samaria. And so it was, when they had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. Something similar to the prayer he prayed for his servant, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. His servant saw physically, but he didn't see spiritually. These people are seeing physically, but they're not recognizing what they're seeing. And so he says, open their eyes that they may see. And they saw, and they were inside Samaria. Can you imagine the utter shock that this army, when suddenly they opened their eyes to see, to recognize what they hadn't recognized before, that they're inside the enemy's camp, surrounded. Samaria was a city set on a hill, a fortified city with great walls and great gates, and suddenly they were inside this. And their eyes were opened, and they knew exactly where they were at that point, inside the enemy's camp, surrounded. They weren't the ones surrounding this time. They were the ones that were surrounded by God's people. And so they were inside Samaria. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? (laughs) He was a bloodthirsty man, this. He was salivating at the very thought of killing his enemies. He said it twice. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He could hardly wait to do it. And he had every chance to do it. And could do it. Because his enemies caught in a trap. But Elisha answered and said, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? You know, normally whenever captives were taken in any war, even modern day war, there's, there's, normally there's rules. There's a reason why you take them captive rather than kill them. And so he said, no, we're not going to kill them. What did he say to do? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 25, If I can just show you this here, in Proverbs uh, 25, verse 21 and 22, it says, For if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you shall heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And so Elisha said, No, there's another way to deal with this enemy. 
And much to the king of Israel's surprise, he said, we're going to, be, we're going to show him grace. We're going to show him some kindness. They're not expecting this to happen. Now, Elisha was smart enough to know this wasn't the whole of Syria's army. And had they have slaughtered them all in that city, there would have been a bigger army come the next day or the next week against them. And so he was smart enough to know this. Well, let's try this. Let's show them some kindness. You know, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us something similar. He talks about this. Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Ah, that's a big call, isn't it? Very hard to love your enemies, isn't it? very hard to be nice to somebody who has done you wrong. Who has spitefully used you. Who perhaps hates your very guts. <laughs> what are you doing, Ruth, over there? Eh? <laughs> it's your Bible app. It's talking to you. Your Bible app's talking to you. All right, well, let me talk to you instead. All right? <laughs> switch him off and let's switch on to me, will you? <laughs> And so it's very, very hard, isn't it, to love your enemies, to do good to those who spitefully use you. But that's what Jesus said. And like Proverbs says, you shall heap coals of fire on their head. You'll melt them. Oftentimes you'll melt a hard heart by an act of kindness. And so the prophet says, no, we're going to feed them and we're going to let them go back to their master and see what happens. Well, we see what happens. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and they drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. And so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. And so it had a definite positive effect. Just what Elisha hoped would happen and planned to happen, and it actually worked. And then if we read on, though, verse 24, and it happened after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. I want you to know that verse 23 and verse 24 are not a contradiction. It looks like a contradiction. There are no contradictions in the Bible. It's easily explained. Notice the words of verse 23. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Remember I told you when we told the story of Naaman, the Syrian leper? How that those bands, those marauding bands of Syrians who came into the border of Israel because their land bordered Israel, and how they uh, destroyed villages and took captives away, and that little maid of Naaman the leper was a captive to him. Well, these are the bands that it's talking about. And whenever Elisha did what he did, then they came no more into the land of Israel. Historians tell us between verse 23 and 24 is four years. We've seen already in our studies how this skips along sometimes, and sometimes you can get four years or seven years between two verses because the story just moves on that quickly. And this is what's happened here. And so after four years of relative peace, Ben-Hadad could not stop himself from hating Israel. It was there. 
and only at some time to come to the fore again. And even though he saw the kindness of Israel to them, and even though he had saw one of his great top generals healed of leprosy a few years ago, none of that prevented him from this rising up in his heart, this animosity against Israel. And so he decided this time it wouldn't be marauding bonds this time. It wouldn't be a great host this time. It would be all his army would go and they would besiege Samaria. And so they gathered up and they besieged Samaria. That means they surrounded the whole city. And I've already told you this city was set on a hill. It was uh, heavily guarded. It was almost impregnable. It had great walls and great gates. So it was very hard to storm as an army. But he decided he wouldn't storm the city. He would starve the city. It would take longer, but it would have the same effect. And so he surrounded the city. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80, 80 shackles of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove's droppings for five shackles of silver. And so things are pretty bad. A donkey's head was not kosher for an Israelite to eat. But at that point they would eat anything. And look how dear a donkey's head was, 80 shekels of silver. So there wasn't many donkeys around that ate them all. And this is the law of supply and demand. What about the cab of doves dung, a pint of doves droppings? He says that literal, well, there's commentators who say, no, it was little seed pods or it was little bulbs of plants and you ground them up, dried them out and ground them up into flour and made little cakes. But there's no evidence or proof of that. It was literal. That's how bad things were. I don't know what protein was in that, but certainly I wouldn't like it for my lunch, would you? In fact, it's getting near lunchtime. I shouldn't even talk about this. <laughs> but it's really bad. But then it gets worse. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my Lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? from the threshing floor or from the wine press, which are both empty? Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Cannibalism. That's how dire the situation had become. To this mother was prepared to eat her own child, her own baby. And if you think that's bad, I think what's even worse, I think what's even worse was her attitude. The only thing she was concerned about was not eating her baby was that this woman had promised the next day would eat her baby and she reneged. That was the only thing that was bothering her. That was the only thing. She had no conscience about it. She had no heart about it. It's just she didn't keep her word. We ate my baby today, we ate hers tomorrow, and she didn't keep her word. That's the only thing bothered her. You say, how heartless, how horribly heartless could a human being be that they could eat their own children? There's an organization in America called Planned Parenthood, and it's big in the news in the States today. And the reason is they get half a billion dollars from the American government. And most of what they do 
is abortion clinics. And pro-life people set up a sting operation where they took a hidden camera to talk to some of these Planned Parenthood people, and they discovered, they said, and it's, it's, it's on TV, they said that they were selling the parts of the babies that were aborted. Selling body parts. This is the 21st century. This is an enlightened age, supposedly. But yet the heart of man is exceedingly wicked above all things, Jeremiah said. Who can know it? And so we can look back at this and say, well, that was then, that was pagans, that was then. But wait a minute. These were even the people of God, by the way, Israel. But we can look back and say, well, that was an unenlightened age. But today, selling body parts of aborted babies, it's unbelievable, isn't it? You can hardly believe it. It's happening today, but it is. So that's her whole concern. And that happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. As he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. So it looked like, at least it looked like that he had been in mourning, that there was some contrition of heart, that he was sorrowful. That's what it looked like, because that's what it means to wear sackcloth, Bible talks about sackcloth and ashes. That's what it looked like. It seemed that way. But the reality was, he was sorry for what was happening, but he wasn't sorry for the reason for what was happening. And the reason for what was happening to his city and to his nation was him. He was an idolatrous king. He had golden calves set up in Dan and Bethel for people to worship. This was an Israelite king worshipping false gods and had the land flooded with false worship. And it didn't dawn on him that what was happening to his nation was his fault. If he had reversed that, he could have had revival in his nation. But he was worshipping false idols and false gods. And the enemy came in and was about to destroy them. Listen to what happens. Then he said, verse 31, then he said, God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Isn't it amazing how people can go through this life, no thought of God, worshiping everything but the true God, don't want to live their lives for God, not interested in church or the Bible or the things of eternity. And yet when something bad happens, who's the first person they blame? God. And here he is. He's the problem. He's the reason why the country's in the state it's in and he's sitting surrounded by the enemy. And yet he doesn't see it. He's blaming Elisha. It's Elisha's fault. Elisha's the only one who can help him. Elisha's the only one that's in touch with God here that can actually help this man, and yet he's blaming him. And that's just like the ungodly, isn't it? God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains in him today. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, the elders of the city, who had more sense. 
At least they went to the man of God. They knew what the real problem was. They were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Yeah, both his father and mother were murderers. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Both of them had blood in their hands. He sent, away, sent this to take away my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door. Hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait, Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And so the king sent this man to kill Elisha to cut up his head and it seems like it's implying here that as he went to do that that the king had second thoughts and ran after him and Elisha says when the messenger gets to the door bolt the door stop him because the king's following hard after him and that's exactly what happened but I want you to know what the king said surely this calamity is from the Lord why should I wait for the Lord any longer now, would that not imply the fact that he said, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Would that not imply that at some point, perhaps, Elisha had spoken to him and says, look, be patient. Hold on. God is going to come to the rescue. But you've got to wait a little bit longer. It's hard to wait, isn't it, on an answer from God of things are getting worse instead of better, isn't it? Isn't it? Or maybe you're very super spiritual and you find it easy to wait. I don't. Most people don't. Even if you feel God is going to intervene here, he's going to help me, but you see no sign of it, and in fact things are getting worse by the day. It's hard to hold on. So he got to the place, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Well, what was he going to do? What was he going to do anyway? Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow, tomorrow. He didn't realize how close deliverance was. You know, those two mothers eating their babies. I have a message in that. Some of you are coming here long enough to remember, don't boil your baby. Remember that message I had years ago? Don't boil your baby. She never knew how close she was to deliverance. 24 hours away and everything was going to change so we need to be patient we need to hold on we need to let God do what God's going to do then Elisha said hear the word of the Lord thus saith the Lord tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shackle and two seas of barley for a shackle at the gate of Samaria a sea is about 8 gallons suddenly there's going to be an abundance and it's going to be sold so cheaply that everybody will have enough. And so an officer in whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? There's always going to be the scoffers and the skeptics. No matter what happens, no matter if you explain God moved here, it was a miracle of God, God intervened, there's some people who will never, ever believe it. They're skeptical. They're scoffers. They'll laugh at you. And here is a class example. 
You know, Peter said in the last days they'd be scoffers. People who walk after their own lusts. He's saying, where is the Lord's coming? You've been saying this for years, since the fathers were, and there's no sign of it. And he says they'll scoff and they'll laugh at the people of God. There's lots of scoffers today. They scoff at this word. They laugh at the Bible. They laugh at you. They say this is fables and fairy stories. Or they'll turn around and say the story of Adam and Eve really is just an allegory. It wasn't really true. We don't have to believe that literally. Surely you don't believe literally that the prophet Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. You don't believe that nonsense, do you? It's only an allegory. It's only a wee story. No, we believe it literally as God intended us to believe it. Yes, it's miraculous. Yes, we can't understand it. Yes, it's supernatural, but we believe it by faith, no matter what the scoffers say. The scoffers are having a field day with the Word of God today. They're laughing at it. They're saying it's nonsense. It's not scientific. It's contradictory. All these things, let them scoff, let them laugh. It's the truth. If the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Ah, be careful what you scoff at. A lot of scoffers on TV today laughing at Christianity, saying it's irrelevant, it's a joke, it's a fable. Be very careful. This man would see it, but he couldn't eat of it. It says, there were four leprous men at the gendrons of the gate, and they said one to another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, let us come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians, and if they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. We have nothing to lose. We're going to die anyway. At least if we fall upon the Syrians, they might have some generosity of heart. They might have some pity on us and give us something to eat. What have we got to lose? If we sit here and do not do anything, we're going to die. And so they got up. Verse 5, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the armies, and I listen to this, for the Lord had caused the armies of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. Huh. Earlier, God had done something to their eyes. Now he's doing something to their ears. And they're hearing the sound of a great army. Arthur Pink said, could they be hearing the sound of the army that Elisha saw of chariots of fire and horses? Could they be hearing the sound of the angelic army? So they heard the sound of chariots, the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said one to another, look, the king of Israel is hired against us, the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and they left the camp intact. The four leprous men that says they rose at twilight. 
It says here, they fled at twilight. The very moment those four leprous men rose from their feet and began to walk, that's when God did this. When he saw that somebody was acting and stepping out, suddenly he caused this great noise to come at twilight. And at the same moment, the Syrian army fled and they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing. And they went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from in there also and went and hid it. Well, that would only be natural, wouldn't it? Suddenly they have all the food they can eat and all the silver and all the clothes they could ever wear. And they said one to another, though, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. When you have good news to share, it's wrong to remain silent, isn't it? And the Christian has got the best news to share that this world has ever heard. The gospel is the good news. And these people had bread to eat, and we have the bread of life. And it's wrong for us to remain silent whenever we can share good news, isn't it? I mean, if something good happened to you, you couldn't wait to get on the phone to tell somebody. But the best thing that could ever happen to you is that your soul has been born from above, that you're forgiven, that you're washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's something to share, isn't it? It says, if we wait till morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore, come let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and they called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. This man is just so full of unbelief. He's so skeptical. <laughs> oh, dear. Let us now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the fields, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants answered and said, please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the other multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the other multitude left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And so the messengers returned and told the king. And then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shackle, two seas of barley for a shackle, according to the word of the Lord. No matter how huh, incredible it seemed, uh, it was the word of the Lord and it came true, didn't it? Now the king had appointed the officer in whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And so it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king. Note how this is written twice. When the Holy Spirit records something twice, you know it's important. 
And he wants us to get the point that when God gives his word, it's very, very important that we listen. So it happened as the man of God has spoken to the king, saying, to see is a body for a shackle, to see a fine flower for a shackle, and sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then the officer that answered the man of God said, look, now look, if the God would make a windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, you will see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. All the scoffers, all the skeptics, all the naysayers, all the ones who laugh at the Bible, there's going to come a day when they'll laugh no longer. They'll say that the Word of God is true. It's unfailing. It never fails. When God gives His Word, He keeps His Word. Amen? So here we are, following in the footsteps of this incredible ministry of this great prophet. There's just a little bit more to do. We're, we're beginning to see an end in sight. You've been very patient over these 10 weeks, but there's a little bit more to do, and then we'll finish off about the life of Elisha. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is uncompromisingly true. It's unfailingly true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's the absolute truth. And Lord, as we read through these incidents in the life of this great servant of God, we are encouraged and strengthened by it that nothing is impossible to you. And nothing is impossible if we can believe it. So we give you thanks for it. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to read and study and look into, that we will be strengthened by and encouraged by your living word. So God, we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.